As I uh, was preparing my outline on Thursday, I realized, you know, I could preach for weeks on this. And uh, don't worry, I won't, nor will I preach for hours, so you're all safe, okay? Um, although Mark assures me he likes my long sermons. So, nonetheless, we're not going to go too long today. Uh, we're going to, I'm breaking this larger passage up into two pieces, but I'm, like I've done, did with the earlier part of chapter 3 here, I'm going to read the whole part of it, even though half of it I'll get to next week. So, starting in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever perishes, uh, sorry, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked hates uh, wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be seen clearly that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Father, uh, this is in many ways no easy text. And so I ask for your mercy, lest I fall into the exegetical traps, lest I lead your people into any error concerning this passage of Scripture. May your word comfort those who are afflicted and conflicted, as they believe that which it says. May your word afflict those who are comfortable in their unbelief and their sin, that they would cry out to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the only Savior of the world. Amen. When I was in seminary and for a little over a year after I graduated from seminary, I had um, the privilege and frustration of working at a rescue mission. And uh, there were many memorable experiences that I had there. Uh, there was uh, one guy in particular that I would talk to on a very regular basis. And for some reason, I can't remember his name. But he was a little short Mexican guy. And, you know, I don't think I'd mess with him in a fight. Because he looked like he'd been in a few and he knew what he was doing. And uh, he would occasionally go off on the alcoholic deep end. He struggled with alcoholism, and he'd be okay for a week or two, and then you'd see Rudy. That was his name. See, I knew it would come to me eventually. Rudy Hernandez. And and you liked Rudy, because he was a nice guy. And you see he wouldn't come in, and you'd know that he had most likely gone across the street to uh, Charlie's, Good Time Charlie's Bar, to have a few too many drinks. And you lamented what things would be like. It was usually uh, in those moments that sometimes he'd make his way over to the rescue mission after the rest of the guys had been put to bed. He'd knock on the door and I'd have a conversation with him. And Rudy would almost always quote John 3.16 and 3.17. You could smell the beer coming off of his breath as he would say to me that, uh, that God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world but to save the world. And I would always repeat back to him, 18 and 19. 
<laughs> so we had this ongoing theological discussion because what Rudy was doing was essentially making it okay for him to sin without him turning away from his sin. That he was using the coming of Christ to kind of say, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how often I get drunk, how drunk I get, and what I do when I get drunk. Jesus came to save me. And there's an element of truth to that, but there's also an element of untruth to that. So let's dig into that. Our big idea this morning is that Jesus was sent to save condemned people. And some of you might at first kind of shiver at that one, but we'll, it will make sense when we're done. But I have a preliminary question before we get into the guts of the text. If you look, if you're reading the ESV, you'll notice that there are quotation marks there. If you have one of those Bibles that has the red letters of Jesus, you know, uh, it's probably in red. But there is a question that arises. Did Jesus say this, or is it a comment by John based upon what Jesus has said to Nicodemus? That's an important question, okay? Now, when I say this, let's keep in mind our doctrine of Scripture. So whether Jesus said it or John is commenting on it, it's Scripture, and all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for all of these things. So let's not get to the mindset that the red letters are more important than the rest of the Bible because they're all equally the Word of God and are to be trusted and believed. So regardless of what we think about who said these words, they are Scripture and are to be believed and received by faith and uh, usually with joy. Okay? Now, almost every translation assumes that they are the words of Jesus, but oddly enough, most commentators assume they are the comments of John. And as, you, as I sit and think about that, you know, one of the things that's a reality that we have to deal with is the uh, influence of the King James Version of the Scriptures. I'm not speaking against the King James here. So don't, don't want anyone to worry about that. But because it has placed these in the mouth of Jesus, translations are loath to go against that. Okay, So there's a huge precedent that has been set, and so most translations don't go against that precedent. But there are a couple of things that make people like me think this is most likely the statements about John. And there's two things in particular that come, uh, stick out to me. One is that John, not Jesus, usually speaks of God not as Father. Okay? When you think about the prologue, it's God, it's God, it's God. When Jesus talks about God, he talks about my Father. There's only one place I can think of in John's Gospel where he says, God, my God and Father and your God and your Father. That's the only place I can think of in which he uses that phrase with regard to the Father. It's usually Father. And so here it's about God. So, that's one thing. Secondly, when Jesus speaks to about himself, he usually uses the word, the term son of man. It is John who refers to Jesus as the son of God. And this passage refers to him as God the unique son. So if it is Jesus, it's the only time he does it. Now it doesn't mean he didn't, but that's why I lean toward this as being a comment of John upon what Jesus has already said. 
But also a third thing. The construction of these verses that follow 3.15 are very logical. There's a lot of fours, in order that's, because of's, which is usually very odd to have in a conversation. I mean, this is, this is very didactic. And when we talk, when we look at the first 15 verses, uh, there's a lot more give and take, so to speak, in what's going on. And so all of a sudden it would be Jesus is dominating the conversation over Nicodemus, and Jesus is almost getting out a whiteboard to kind of illustrate to him these things. So I lean towards this being comments of John, and that may or may not be important to you. Let's get into what's actually going on and what's actually being said here. And the first thing I want us to take note of that is very important is that the sending of the Son is an act of love. Now, we've just talked about how the Son of Man is going to be lifted up like the bronze servant so that people may look upon Him in in belief and be saved. And so the question then arises, why is it that the Son is being lifted up? How did this happen? And so this section of this next passage is going to explain why it is that the Son of Man is lifted up. Why? For God so loved. The foundation of the atonement, in addition to God's justice, is God's love. It's funny, to me anyway, because I hear caricatures of John Calvin fairly often on the internet, as he is stern and he is heartless, and his theology is uh, not just narrow, but in fact, in many ways, it's cruel. And uh, this week, I broke out my little copy of uh, Robert Peterson's Calvin and the Atonement. I purchased it recently, said this is a good time to look and see what he says. And the first chapter talks about God's motive for the atonement in the writings of Calvin. And what that motive is? Love. The love of God being the heart of what drives it. So in tune with what we see here in John 3.16. Now this series of verbs, God loved, uh, God sent, uh, God gave. These are all sort of these, these simple past tense, which are, means they're pointing to a particular loving act that's in view. This giving of the Son. Here the focus is on the love of the Father. In Galatians 2, it's on the love of Christ. And so we see that Scripture uh, fills things out. They're not, these two passages are not in conflict with one another, but they're actually... Um, building upon one another. Because there's some who, based on the love of Christ, somehow think that Jesus has to um, twist his Father's arm to forgive us. That somehow the cross is a way in which he manipulates the Father. Well, that sounds a little crass and, and sinful, but you understand what I mean. That somehow the Father is unwilling and the Son makes him willing. But we see here in John 3.16 that the Father is fully willing and for that reason he sent the Son. The Son didn't run away or come off on his own mission, but he, but he is recognized as being sent on a mission by his Father, a mission that is prompted by the Father's love. And so we see 
the love of God the Father is on display in what is happening as the Son of Man is lifted up as the Savior of sinners. And so we must banish any thought of the Son sort of forcing His hand and making Him willing. So God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. We see the incredible depth of His love precisely by the object that is given. My wife is not in the room right now, but I think she would laugh when I remind her of this. Over the summer, no, I'm sorry, over Christmas vacation, we watched Extreme Cheapskates. Some of you may have seen that show. And there's one episode where one of these extreme cheap cheap skates is going to get a, uh, I I think it was a birthday gift for his wife. And so what he does is he goes to the dollar store and he he, he buys a few things in the dollar store, but then he goes behind a florist's store into the dumpster and find some reasonably not wilted flowers and, and dusts them off and brings them to his wife and she sort of feigns happiness. <laughs> I have the dumpster flowers. Isn't that so exciting? How great is my husband's love for me that he gave me flowers he got for free from the dumpster. You can almost hear it in her voice as she tries to act in a rejoicing sign away. How he loved his money more than he loved his wife and went dumpster diving. This is the complete opposite. The father so loved that, not, that he didn't give the, the thing that was least precious to him, the thing that was least on his mind, the thing that was least upon his heart, but he gave the thing that was greatest upon his heart, that was most valuable to him, his only begotten or unique son. I have two sons. I still can't conceive of the thought of giving up one of them to save someone else. But this is what the father did. His only begotten son. And and John places that in word order to emphasize the only begotten Son He gave. Okay? really want you to understand the greatness of the gift that is given. I could not help but think of Abraham who was asked to give His only Son. The one of promise, Isaac, upon the mountain. And what a great gift it would have been. And thankfully, the father told him no at the last moment and provided the, the ram in the thicket. But we see that the father did not withhold his own hand from striking his own son. For as Paul says in Romans 8, he did not spare his own son, but gave him for us. The greatness of his love is seen in the greatness, in the astounding nature of the gift which that love is prompted to give. He gave precisely by sending His Son. This is another aspect of that particular act that is driven by love. I love these words of Tim Keller's. And you'll probably hear them periodically as we look through John. Every religion has a prophet who is pointing people to God. Jesus is the only one who says, I am God and I am coming to find you. He was sent by the Father to seek and to save the lost. 
He's coming to find His people who have gotten lost. His sheep who have wandered away. He's coming to bring them back. Sent from the Father's side. The Father whom He loved because He loves His people. And so the Father didn't just give the Son, but sent Him into this world. But a particular kind of world, a world that is full of rebels. Noah came out this week, and apparently it's been, been thus far a big box office hit. Haven't seen it. Don't know if I will. Not all that important. But one of the things that one reviewer mentioned was that it did a very good job of showing, without being overly graphic and everything, why it is that God would judge the world. Because the, the filmmaker really did present a world that was out of control and filled with sin. And in a sense, we don't often think of the world in that, that way. We think about maybe certain people groups that way, but we don't think of the world in that particular way. But the world of Noah was one that was deserving of God's just wrath, such that only one man and his family were saved. That's the kind of world Jesus enters into. That's the world He sent into. Not to judge yet, but to save. And so the Father's love motivated Him to send Jesus into the world to give His love. And so the sending of the Son was an act of love, but the world He came to save was already condemned. Indeed, already condemned. Let's pause for a moment. God so loved the world. We see those anytime we go to a football game or watch a football game on TV. There's always some guy holding up John 3.16. And sometimes he spells it out in as big a word as he can without blocking the view of everyone behind him. The world. That's a very controversial word. Because we have to, we have to sort out what is meant by that word in this particular context. Because this word can refer to the world, meaning the, the physical world that exists. It can refer to the entire universe. It can refer to the earth. It can refer to the inhabitants of the earth. It is used at times to refer to the ungodly multitude. So there's a wide range of meaning for this particular world, cosmos or world. What does John or Jesus mean by world in this place. And one of the things that we've been talking about in the men's Bible study as we talk about how to study the Bible is that we look at the text, but we also look at the context, the area around the text. And that can be as small as the chapter, as big as the book, as large as the whole Bible. That's all part of the context. Where is this in the history of redemption? That's a good question to ask as we think about this particular question. There are some who teach that Jesus loved and died for every single person who has lived. That's called a universal atonement. Uh, they don't usually mean by that that Jesus saved everybody, but that Jesus made everybody save a bowl. Okay, that's not a view that I hold. I don't think it's the view that Jesus held. John Owen, in his classic book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, points out one of the logical absurdities of this particular view when he says, 
Did God send his son? Did Christ come to die for Cain and Pharaoh, damned so many ages before his suffering? Even at the time of Christ, there were many who never would hear the message of Christ. Did he die for them in this saving fashion? Is that what John 3.16 would have us believe? I'm not so sure. Particularly when I looked at how this word is used in other places by John. In John 1.10, I'm not going to read from all of these things, but you can note these, go back later. John 12, 19, 1 John 5, uh, 19, Revelation 13, 3. In each of these instances, we see that the world is used, but it doesn't mean everybody, because the elect are excluded in those contexts. For instance, in John 1, the world did not receive him, but to those who did, okay, doesn't mean every single person, but it refers to a large group, not every individual. We see it uh, similarly in terms of in Revelation 13. The world was worshiping the beast, but we know from the context in that same chapter that those who followed the lamb did not worship the beast. And so it draws a distinction that is there. It does not mean every single person. For instance, when it's used in John's Gospel The whole world is running after Jesus. Does that mean that every single person in the world? No. A great number of people, according to the the people who said it, were running after Jesus. It felt like the whole world to them, perhaps. But it did not mean that people in India were running after Jesus at that moment, right? Okay. How do we, should we understand this word? I believe that John is pointing to the international scope of the atonement. We see in John 11, High Priest Caiaphas makes a statement that it is better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. And in 51 it says, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. 52, And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so there's this this notion that John brings up in John 11 that the people of God are not limited to the nation of Israel, but there are some who are scattered throughout the nations. And so Jesus, according to John 11, not only died for the nation of Israel, but for those as well. And so the idea here in John 3 is very similar. Jesus is not just dying for his people among the Jews, but for his people also among the Gentiles. We see this as well in Revelation 5. One of the great hymns that breaks out in the heavenly places is that they're, they're worshiping Jesus as the Lamb of God because He has purchased for God people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. You'll note that's very significant because he, it doesn't say He purchased every tribe, nation, tongue, and language, but He purchased people from them. There's representatives from all of those groups that, are, that, are, that he purchased, but he didn't buy the whole the groups. Okay? 
We had some JoJo's the other night at someone's house. They bought JoJo's. They didn't buy all the JoJo's. And thankfully, because his garage would not be big enough to have all the JoJo's in the world. Although I'd like to come to your house and eat more JoJo's. Okay, you understand the distinction there? Now, as Dr. Roger Nicole, one of my professors, notes, this is a very controversial thing. The earliest Christians were all Jews, he says. It seemed almost inconceivable to them that God would go outside the boundaries of the Jewish nation to shower his blessings on mankind. And so, as John writes, most likely to Hellenistic Jews in Asia Minor, this is a shocking sentence for them. Because it's saying, you're not it. You're part of it, but you're not the whole of it. God has a plan for people who are not blood, don't have blood ties to Abraham. And so, this was controversial. This means for us, as we think about this, that there are no limits on ethnicity. It's not just Jewish people that he loved and died for, but people of every kind of ethnic background. We can't limit it to people of particular skin colors or skin tones, saying that Jesus died only for Middle Eastern-looking people, but not for people who were darker or lighter. Or, as some might say, Jesus only died for white people. No. He loved and he gave himself for people of all different skin shades. We can't say, for instance, on the basis of this text, or because of this text, that Jesus only died for people who committed particular sins. We must remember that there is only one sin that is, that is unforgivable, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus loves and died for people who commit all kinds of sins besides that one. We can't limit it to certain groups that he, that, oh, well, Jesus can deal with this sin, but he can't deal with that sin. And so we have to recognize, just as it does in Scripture, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that there are homosexuals Jesus loved and died for. There are abortionists that Jesus loved and died for and will save. That these categories that we kind of create of, well, God can't forgive that person, that doesn't really exist except with the respect to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So there's no category of sinner that is beyond the reach of Jesus Christ if he chooses to apply his death to that person. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. As my friend Rudy was quick to point out, in quoting John 3.17, he was not sent to condemn the world. But if we read verse 18, we recognize that is because it was already condemned. Verse 18. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Perfect tense. Happened in the past. Present ongoing consequences. Already condemned. Jesus is not entering into a world that is neutral towards God. He's entering into a world that has been condemned by God. To remove those, to save some who are there. 
See, this is the greatness of the gospel. He's not finding people who have a couple little flaws and fixing those little flaws. He's coming to people who, apart from God's grace, are completely irredeemable. It's like the, the allusion to last, in last week to numbers. It's like we've been bit, bit by those snakes. And we're writhing on the ground. We're dead men. We are like people on death row. Well, not we. I hope you're not part of those. But people outside of Christ. This world to which Jesus came was filled with people who were on death row. They have been condemned. They are awaiting the execution of the judgment upon them. But some of them don't even realize it. Let's think about this for a moment. D.A. Carson talks about this. The Son of Man came into a world already, sorry, came into an already lost and condemned world. He did not come into a neutral world. He came into a lost world in order to save some. Martin Lloyd-Jones says something similar. Man is not only dead, he is facing eternal punishment, a continuation of his state of spiritual death and torment and unhappiness forever and ever. So this great salvific sort of passage points us to the great problem that we have. It reminds me of John, uh, sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 1, one of my favorite verses, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul was speaking present tense, of course. And so as we build on this image of people on death row, we recognize that some of the inmates are quite content because they have their three hots and a cot They're content as long as they have their internet and cable. Okay, most of them don't have internet, but they have access to cable. And so there are people who are just content to tune out that reality as long as they have the modern luxuries that life offers them. There are others that are filled with despair over this reality. They they just know it internally, and they wrestle and struggle with it, and they often end up with addiction. Alcoholism, drug addiction, pornography, all all different kinds of addictions that people can find themselves in. Food, shopping, they're trying to null the pain they feel because of the weight of the condemnation upon their shoulders. They know, but they don't want to flee to Christ, so they hide. So God does not love us because we're righteous, God does not love us because we have it together, but rather we see it is despite our sin. We read from Deuteronomy 9 this morning, and they're about to cross over over the Jordan into the promised land and dispossess the, the, uh, the people of the land, and God reminds them. Don't, and he says it three times, which means, we importante, okay? We've got to catch that. Three times he says, Don't think in your minds it's because you're righteous and they're not. It is not your righteousness. He does mention it's because I'm keeping the covenant I made with your fathers. He does mention that it's because of the greatness of their wickedness. Okay? 
So he mentions these sorts of things, but don't think for a second it's because of your own righteousness, because you are a stubborn and stiff-necked people, he says. You keep making God angry in the wilderness. (laughs) You're not a treasure. God treasures you, but you're not a treasure. It's not just Deuteronomy 9. Deuteronomy 7. Starting in verse 7, It is not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. Now, they might think, oh, God loves us because we're few. No, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. Why does God love Israel? Because He loves Israel. And he keeps the oath he swore to their fathers. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The keeping of the covenant. Why does God love us? Because he loves us. And he's keeping the promise that he made to his son. It's not because we're righteous. It's not because we're good. We see this as well, Romans 5. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, and elsewhere in Romans 5 it says, while we were still His enemies, Christ died for us. This was not a group of people that knew they were guilty and wanted to be saved. These were people who were content at that point to be God's enemies. Already condemned. Ephesians 2. And you, speaking to the Ephesian Christians, you were dead in the trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. And He goes on to talk about how they were made alive in Christ. And so, in order to grasp the greatness of the gospel, we have to grasp the greatness of the gift and the greatness of our need. And that's all right here. Already condemned shows the greatness of our need. The only unique Son of God, the greatness of the gift. And so the Father loved His unlovable enemies by sending His Son to die in their place. Which leads us to the third point, last point, short point. All who believe enjoy life instead of condemnation. John is developing these two contrasting themes in this passage, life and condemnation. And you need to kind of think in your heads, Deuteronomy. I lay before you life and death. That's that's one of the drumbeats of that whole book. Life or death. Life or death. And here it is, repeated over and over again. Life and death in 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 the view of condemnation or perishing. Those who believe, present tense, meaning there's ongoing belief there, they do not perish under this, this condemnation, but they have eternal life. That is why John, uh, Paul would say in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
So it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your sins. Those who believe are saved by the power of God. Jew first, then the Greek. But he who believes is not condemned, but has been saved through him. And so the picture that, that we should really get here with this, this talking of condemnation is, is that of a judge. The judge has passed sentence. I find you, Steve Cavallaro, guilty of the following charges. Far too numerous to mention right now. But what happens in our salvation is that one who is dead in sins and trespasses, who's sitting on death row among the walking dead, receives a pardon. A full and complete pardon. Set free. I love the words of Charles Wesley and Anne, can it be? That one section where he goes, My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what happens to all of us when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. The chains have been removed, and now we move out of the cell. This is a great blessing of the gospel precisely because we continue to sin. That's why at the, you know, Paul talks about who will deliver me from this body of death in Romans 7. He's, he's, he's still weighed down by sin. He still knows that he does the things he doesn't want to do and doesn't do the things he ought to do. He feels guilt as a Christian. And there it is. 8-1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Good news to the saint who sins. Now no condemnation. And he ties it in verse 3 back to the, that the Father sent His Son in the likeness of sinful man that He might save sinful man, doing what the law was unable to do. And so we've been delivered from the law's loud thunder by the saving work of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, that's not the end of the story. Not only do we continue to sin at times, but Satan often tries to steal the joy of our salvation by getting us to wallow in our guilt, by getting us to remain in our fear, to getting us to live in our shame. And John Calvin points us back to the gospel in all of this. For there is no calm haven where our minds can rest until we come to God's free love. Elsewhere he writes, Whenever our sins press us, whenever Satan would drive us to despair, Okay, so if you're dealing with the guilt of your sin and you're overcome with fear and trembling, what does he say? We ought to hold out this shield. That God is unwilling that we should be overwhelmed with everlasting destruction because He has appointed His Son to be the salvation of the world. And so we lay claim to that promise. Not the way Rudy does. To excuse sin. But the way that recognizes that we hate our sin. 
We hate its tyranny over us. And we long for something better that is found in Christ. And so when we're feeling oppressed, we run to Christ. We, we, this is gospel practice. <laughs> we understand the fullness of the gospel, the sufficiency of his work. And so when you're feeling that sense of condemnation that you shouldn't feel as a Christian, you run to Christ. That he lifts the burden from your soul. That you might remember again in a fresh the free pardon found in his grace. Because when we, we do bring great glory to Christ, when we rest in the sufficiency of his sacrifice, he receives great praise as the only Savior of the world when we rest in him. We, here we get to the heart of the gospel, which we must understand to receive the truth. And the heart of this is that Jesus was sent for sinners, condemned sinners, to purchase their pardon. He does not assist us, but he completely saves us. And so this is rooted in God's freely given love, not in our own worthiness. And as we grasp this, we're able to implement gospel practice of, of seeking refuge in Christ from our guilt and shame. And if we do that, we will not remain stuck in our fear and stuck in our guilt, but we'll see that Christ has broken the cycle that we've known for too long, that He has set us free, that He has given us the Spirit so that we can walk in a whole new way of dealing with our sin. And it's all rooted in this. Let's pray. Father, when we stop and think about the greatness of your love, the greatness of your gift, the greatness of our need, we see the sufficiency of Jesus, who is the perfect response to your love, who is the only measure of your gift, and who sufficiently saves your people from their sin. For those of us who know him, may we grasp this to a greater degree. For lo, we all sin. We all sin in thought, word, and deed. And we all need this comfort when we fail. And Father, some of us may not know this news. And may you open their eyes this morning through the preaching of your word, by the work of your spirit, that at last they would fall and say, I need Jesus. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.